Hey, good morning. Um, the goal of what I'd like to attempt to do in the six sessions that we have ahead of us is to be able to, in some small way, convey a methodology of teaching Gomorrah to students starting from scratch. In other words, starting from the first time a guy, he's never, he's never, he doesn't know there's such thing as Talmud. He doesn't know he exists. As far as he knows, there's a Bible. And as far as he knows, he's got some vague notion that there's some connection between the number five and the Bible. And that's about as far as his knowledge goes. And now what you want to tell, you want to teach him So that's quite a large jump to get from a basic knowledge that there's such a thing as Bible to Shoshinaga Chesapara. Can you just Okay, so what I'd like to do is present to you a, an approach which will take you from the first engagement, and the guy's never ever seen a page of Gomorrah in his entire life, and give you a step-by-step -step approach of how to engage at that first meeting, take it further to the second stage, third stage, fourth stage, fifth stage, and time permitting to get all the way to teaching a advanced student how to approach Gumarashi Tesis Rishonim Machronim. It's a little bit ambitious in the space of six sessions to know Kolatoro Kula and how to approach it. But since you probably know Raiv Atoyo, so I'm just going to be filling in the missing gaps. Now before I begin, what we're learning now is no, we're not, we're not learning how to learn. We're learning how to teach. And therefore, please do not be offended if I'm not yeshivish in my approach. Because one of the basic components of learning how to teach is it radically different from learning how to learn. When you learn how to learn, so then as people who've been learning Gemara for an extended period of time, through osmosis, you absorb enormous amount of skills which started at a very young age and it's accumulative so by the time you get to where you are and you know how to learn that doesn't mean you'll know how to teach teaching is a completely different endeavor if you have a person that's been playing tennis since he's five years old and he's a brilliant tennis player that does not mean he'll be able to teach because when he wants to convey that skill set to someone else he'll say you just go like this but they don't know where to begin with. They don't know that you have to hold the racket firmly. They don't know that you have to tilt your hips to... I mean, I don't know if you have to. But you have to tilt and throw the ball up. And get, They know nothing. So what we have to do is to find a way of conveying in a clear language to those people who have no clue at, to do what you're doing very well. Understood? So therefore, it's going to be a completely different mahalach to the one that you may have been mechunachin because you're starting at a very different place. Any questions so far? No? Good. Now, before we begin and we discuss how do you teach a miscarave Gomorrah, there's a more basic question. Why Bichlal would you think to teach him Gomorrah? It seems to be so obscure, so completely irrelevant, at least, at least the kind of Gomorrahs we learn in Nashim Nazikim. Mm -hmm. You go to the person and say, listen, what would you think? And this person just come in through the door. What would you think if you want to give a divorce document to a woman mm -hmm, on a potted plant? What do you think? So there'll probably be a sense of discord between the two of you. 
because he's like trying to figure out this person. Is a potted plant considered connected to the ground or not? So it's very difficult. So the, the logic, the logic is very difficult. It's very foreign. So why would you do that? Why would you take an uninitiated person and expose him to a vast realm of knowledge? And the truth is, say then, at its knock of not knowing, what happened if the potted plant's got holes on the bottom? What then? It seems strange. Again, it may not seem strange to you. You're looking at me, what's so strange about that? That's his knuckle, it's posh. But imagine if you've never, ever, ever heard of anything to do with... As far as I know, there's very rare occurrences of people giving divorce documents in potted plants, as far as I know in the secular world. I don't know, maybe I'm just not... Ex I'm not exposed to divorce law and domestic strife, so it could be I'm wrong. But it doesn't seem that rational to me. So when you're exposing a person to an idea in Talmud, a lot of the ideas are going to be foreign and totally irrelevant. And even if you go to Nazikim, which is slightly more in the world... So you say, well, um, what would happen if you dig a pit in a public domain, okay, and then someone else goes and he's riding on a donkey, and the donkey falls into the pit, and you fall into the pit with the donkey. Well, so they say to themselves, donkey, pit, why is he telling me this? So when you think about learning Gemara, the first question you have to ask yourself is why would we involve a person in discussions which are extremely irrelevant to their day-to-day -day life at the first presentation? Point number two is, why would you want to teach them and get them involved in a language, Aramaic, it's not even Hebrew, the Gemara is a mixture of Aramaic and Hebrew, but it's so foreign to them, even if they have Hebrew skills, the language is very foreign and very difficult. It's difficult. So the concepts are unfamiliar and seemingly irrelevant. The language is difficult and then combined with logic, which is enormously difficult to follow. So why in the world would you take a person who's becoming from and expose him to this? You should keep him away from it. Correct? Correct? In other words, you should keep... And nevertheless, I would like to suggest that possibly one of the first things you should teach a person who's becoming from his Gemara. And not only that, but it should be one of the primary things you teach him. And it should be the thing that you probably focus on the most in you teaching him. But that seems strange. Okay, gentlemen. Any questions until this point? Go on. No, don't be sorry. Um, you want to ask a question at his knockoff? No, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but what's his base on basically this mahalach? Is it uh, mahalach or is it self? You mean developed? the fact that it's important to teach Gemara's no, to beginner? No, you're about to present the next question. Oh, that mahalach. I haven't got there yet. Wait until you see it. No, but I'm just asking, is it self-developed or is it something? No, so I can't take credit for it myself. The Mahalach that I'm going to be teaching over to <coughs> is called from the Sifar Yishonim Achronim that speak about the Klale Alimut. It's, it's a different Mahalach to where the Yeshivas go because when you mechunach in one way you don't necessarily need that. Some people would tie in otherwise. But it's not something that I've made up off my own back. The Mahalach that we're learning in the Yeshivas, is, it, is, is, is it in... It's not contrary to it. It's not, it's, it's not contrary to it. It's, it's okay. I may appear to be a shtiklapi curse, but in the course of time you realize that it's not as dodgy as it all seems. Bennett. That's right. The, 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 the,
the it's horrible to be on the other side, isn't it, for me? <laughs> and come after with all your hours. Go on. The, the, the answer will have to address, you mentioned that the, the question, that, that the examples are seemingly irrelevant. Yeah. But it, it's, it, it is a basic idea that law in general is based on, I'm saying even secular law is based on cases that ne- might not necessarily be relevant in, in the law itself. The, the answer will have to address, I'm saying it's not necessarily a, a going to be a din in relevance, it's going to be a din in why law or why. In other words, you're asking, you're saying that it's not necessarily that Talmudic law is no different from perhaps other secular constructs of law. You're 100% right, but the average person who's not a lawyer won't spend time discussing property. So therefore, in other words, it could be that, but Gemara is even seemingly more disconnected from your life, at least contemporary law, so they're familiar with the players in the process and it speaks to the world that they're, they're a citizen of. In Gemara it speaks to a world which is a very distant world, it's a historical world, and it seems irrelevant and just completely outdated. What about if it's tied down after you learn that Gemara to a practical Okay, Gemara? so that's what we're going to discuss, maybe that's possible to do. Um, just, just a point about it being the first, one of the first things, the most important things to teach. Yes. By uh, can, you, can you just clarify that? Okay, that's precisely what. That, that's your sheet or that's, that's a sheet among. Um, sure, yeah. <laughs> Okay, I don't know. Maybe I should just take him a halakha. Everything I say is my sheeters. Take him or leave him. It's, it's, it's a swara. It's a swara, and maybe when I say you the swara, you'll either say to me, that sounds great, you'll say, that sounds terrible, and we'll have a vikuach. But I think there's a, there's a poshut swara why it should be done, and that's what I'm about to explain. Okay? Good. Okay, so now, the first part of what we've discussed is the challenges of teaching Gomorrah. The challenges of teaching Gomorrah is the subject matter is unfamiliar and possibly uninteresting. The language is strange and difficult, and the logic is hard to follow. Why would you want to get a person involved in such an endeavor? It seems absolutely ridiculous. And I would like to present a hypothesis why it's probably the best thing you could ever do for him. <coughs> okay. Let's begin in the beginning. You've got, you've got a person that wants to become from. What you want to do with this person, essentially, as a Makarev, you want to allow a person the independence to grow by himself. One of the most dangerous things you can ever do to a person that's becoming from is create an unhealthy dependence on you as his, as his Rebbe. Because in doing so, especially when you're dealing with a Baal Shiva, who's a mature, he's generally the age that you're going to be addressing him, he's already highly developed. If you start to create a dependent relationship at that stage of the game, you're crippling the person in a very, very profound way. So one of, your, one of your goals when you are being involved in, the, in, the, in, in allowing a person to see um, Torah is you want to make sure that when you give him the Torah, he doesn't become a cripple that has to always come to you, so he's always dependent on you. Can you just, sorry, just close the door there. Thanks. You don't want to make him a cripple so that he can only ever access Torah through you. Now, even though that this is obviously a terrible thing to do, there's a gigantic temptation for a person who's out there in the Shetach to do it. There's something extremely fulfilling in a negative fashion about having a lot of people depending on you and looking at you as a Rashka Bahag. It's Gishmak. And therefore, not only for them is it unhealthy, it's 
terribly unhealthy for you. So your goal is you want to give the person wings to fly through Yiddishkeit. You don't want to give them, you don't want to make them dependent on you. One of the greatest assets you can give to a person is the capacity to be self-sufficient in learning. He feels empowered, he feels that he can go about the endeavor himself. Now obviously it's a long process and it's not going to be achieved in a short amount of time. But in terms of your focus from an Ehrlicher perspective, is your focus has to be able to make the person independent of, of you. How do you create that independency <coughs> in Okay, different topic. I'm with Gemara. That's a completely different mahalach. This is not for women at all. So when you say beginners, you're talking about people that are already, already interested in becoming religious or you're, you're already dealing, you're, okay. you're presenting Gomorrah to the people that have no idea and you're coming, hey, what do you think about Eishim uh, Shem So I'm, I'm presenting you of why in the spectrum of people you're going to be dealing with, Gomorrah Bichlal should play a role. From the very beginners to the very advanced. In other words, when you have a beginner, you can essentially keep Gomorrah away from him and not inform him about it. If you inform him about it and you emphasize its importance so it will build within him the desire to progress in his learning. If you keep him away from it, he'll develop his entire Mahalach in Yiddishkeit based on a Hashkofic understanding and he won't develop the passion to be able to become textually self-sufficient. So even at the initial stages, you have to be cautious to introduce a person to Mahalach that will build him 10 years down the line. And even though he may not become from. But when you're engaging in the process of Kiruv, you have to do it from a perspective where you're Ehrlich with the person from day one. That's the personal Mahalach. I don't believe in saying to a person, Judaism, it's amazing, look at all this challenge and girls, Kishmak. And then, because I have to deal, I have to deal with the guys who go through the Kiruv machine and then they come to Yeshiva. And they come to me and they say, Rabbi, I'm depressed. I say, why? They say, because this is not Yiddishkeit. I say, what do you mean? They say, the challenge stinks. There's no girls in Yeshiva. There's no exciting trips. I haven't since been in Yeshiva. I haven't been repelling once. I haven't done any bungee jumping. I haven't done windsurfing. I mean, this is not Yiddishkeit. So there's something very, very strange when you take a person being of him through a series of experiences that should not negate to Yiddishkeit and then eventually he thinks, wow, if this is Yiddishkeit, imagine what Yeshiva must be. It must be like this adventure park. <laughs> And then you put him in front of a Gemara and you say, yeah, you are. And he says, what? You say, this is it. You say, well, okay, well, what do I do after like, I've done this for 20 minutes? What's the rest of the day? You say, it's more of this. And then, more. And then, more. Okay, so what do you at nights? Also. So the guy goes, he freaks out. So then I have to deal, then I have to deal on the other side when you get these people come in, so they, they're like depressed and they think that this is the worst thing in the world and because no one ever told them that the Yish Christ built on terror. Less and less. <laughs> you can understand why. Because if they read the pamphlet and they don't see this, oh, there's no bungee jumping, there's no wild water sports, gosh, this is not the place for me. In other words, if there would be a shift at the outset where people would be mechunach, that this is where they're meant to get, so there would be more of a shifa to get to yeshiva. But if it's never on the curriculum, so then why would a person go to yeshiva? Unless you want to get better at water sports. Okay? Good. So, again, so I think therefore, it's, it's, are you starting to understand why yeah. I think it's a swara that you have to engage a person in Torah which is real. Torah which is real. So you, you want to put them into, 
Now, there are advantages to Gemara. It's not only that it's obscure and challenging, but there's something very powerful about putting a person in a sugya, any sugya. Most people have got the concept, and this is for a person who's never stepped into a shul in his life, and you're teaching him Shoshanagah Chasaporah. Why would you do that? Because there's a theme attached to Talmud. The theme attached to Talmud is you can trust your intellect. Your brain is a big player in your religious endeavor. And that is completely contrary to popular belief. Popular belief, popular belief is that religion is something you feel. And it's an issue of preference. And it's an issue of, well, if I really feel like it, I'll do it. And if I don't feel like it, I won't. But there's no issue of a there's no issue of this is well worked out, thought out and reasoned. Now, if you're teaching a person that this is a standard text that Jewish life has focused upon for the last 2,000 years and the whole nature of the text is a rigorous, logical examination of a given point therefore, it's very difficult to think that the religion in its essence is completely irrational because the most primary text that most people put the majority of the effort into is extremely logical and rational. So when you do that you've already shattered the paradigm of the person. Just purely by engaging him in logical discussion you've already dispelled in a in a non-confrontational way the fact that religion is based on what I feel in my guts. Which if it's based on what's feeling my gut, so then listen, if you want to believe that, that's great. And I really admire you for it, but I want to believe something else. Whereas if it's a logical endeavor, so then just like I'm a chayv to do it, I'm I'm to do it, you also to understand. So that's that that's it's intellectually stimulating and it gives over the sense that the religion is not stupid. Most people think about religion that's ritualistic, stupid and superstitious. So if you start teaching a Gemara, a person gets involved in the sugi, he thinks, gosh, this religion is rather clever. Now, if this is clever, and this part is well structured, Pashtas must mean, he won't use the word Pashtas, it must mean that, that maybe the rest of the system is also logically structured. Gosh, so actually by working through one sugya, you can shatter an entire approach that the person has to educate. Now, if you ask me, I think that's very valuable. Go on. In our understanding of mitzvahs, that we can say that through the Talmud, we see that it builds on a very logical process. But the observance and the obligation of mitzvahs and our belief in God is not based on logic. Rather, it's a revelation at Sinai based on tradition, which cannot be proven or understood on a logical basis. That Again, there's a logical component to it. The revelation on Har Sinai is a logical argument that it occurred. In other words, if I can logically approve that there once was a Maimad Har Sinai, so then whatever that Maimad Har Sinai was become logically imperative to me. It's not that I come to you and say, listen, I want you to believe. Why don't you believe? Because I believe! You believe! You're saying, well, I believe because I have a father who had a father who had a father, and since historical information is not fabricated, therefore this thing has been passed down at the fa- in the face of death throughout a period of 3,000 years, and therefore it happened. Well, I'm not going into the logical argument of, which is, ba- that's the kuzuri. The kuzuri is based on the fact that when you come to me and you have no shi'ifas to become, to become Jewish, and I'll say to you, but it has to be. That's a logical proof. Okay? Good? So now, once, the reason why you want to get a person involved in something which is seemingly irrelevant, complicated, a foreign language, is firstly because 
it gives him a level of intellectual integrity in the Torah itself. It dispels the myths that um, this call the Torah Yiddishkeit is superstitious and ritualistic and it encourages him to ask questions. Now when you ask questions you already have broken down some of the barriers which keep people away from Fumkeit. People think that, and it's a very much a Christian idea, that questions are absolutely forbidden. Questions are a display of a lack of faith. And therefore if you ask questions, so then you're a bad person. People who are believers never question. And then you say to him, do you know what? And this is what I'd say to the first introductory level of any Gemara You say to the person, and I'm just jumping a little bit ahead of myself and I'll, I'll, go, I'll go back to it. I'll say to you, what is the most important? If you really want to understand Torah, what's the most important thing that you can ever have? Go on. I'll call you Jim. Jim! Jim, tell me! What do you think is the most important thing to have when, you, when, you, when you're studying Torah? Is your name really Jim? No, okay, sorry. Go on. What is it? You want to understand it? Say it in different words. Um, Kyle! Just getting a few new names. Jessica. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jesse, go on. I, th I think you have to in God. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Not at all. The most important possession you can have, the most treasured thing when engaging in the study of Torah that you can possess, is the question. The question. Now, what is the question? Do you know... Do you know, Bill, that Torah is compared to water? No, I never knew that. I never knew that. What do you know? Do you know that you have to make a benediction before drinking any kind of liquid? No. What is a benediction, Rabbi? Oh, it's a small little prayer. Oh, okay. But do you know that water is an exception to the rule? No, Rabbi, I never knew that. Yes. You only have to make that benediction when you're really thirsty. Why, Rabbi? That's so boring. <laughs> Let me explain to you, though. It's not so boring. Let me ask you a question, Jared. Why is it that you only recite a blessing when you're desperately thirsty and when you're not thirsty at all, you don't? Imagine the situation when you're walking through the desert and you've been there for the last six hours and your throat is parched and dry and all of a sudden you come to an oasis and in the middle of the oasis there's a gigantic fridge and you open up the door of the fridge and you see a crystal clear jug of water condensation forming on the outside and you take a sparkling glass and you pour this tranquil liquid into it and you start to clack it down what's that experience what would you do how would you describe that experience Geschmack, if you knew the word. But you'd probably say <laughs> pleasurable, amazing, satisfying, fulfilling. What would happen, and I know, of course, okay, none of you have ever had this experience, but there are people we've heard about that, that have a little bit of a great night on the town. And they consume copious amounts of alcoholic beverages. <coughs> and the next morning, <coughs> they are not feeling so great. And they realize, oh no, no, not you. And I realize, <laughs> and I realize uh, that in order for me to get a, feel a little bit better, I have to, 
hydrate myself I have to drink so when I drink water and I'm just doing it because I know that I have to get the water in my system how does that feel? at best if I would know the word I would say paraf at best in other words it's, 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 it's something I have to do for one second it's the same experience of drinking water and do you know what? do you know that the Torah is compared to water? and why is that? I'll tell you why because water is essentially tasteless it only tastes good if you have a thirst if you don't have a thirst it's tasteless Torah is the same if you don't have a thirst for it it's absolutely tasteless if you have a thirst for it it's the most pleasurable experience in the world now what thirst is to water the question is to Torah and therefore the most precious thing you can ever possess is a question and the entire Talmud again this is I'm not, I'm not doing this to you right I'm doing this to them yeah. and the entire Talmud is focused around building out the power of the question because only through the question can you ever engage and absorb the knowledge that you're trying to receive so therefore another reason why you're teaching them Gemara is because then they get the thirst to know they get the overall idea that absolutely every piece of information presented to you you have to question, attack, engage in and when they do that they develop a passion and a thirst and they can grow into it if they don't, if they're not exposed to Gemara, they don't develop that same type of rigorous questioning approach to everything in Yiddishkeit. And on the contrary, it becomes even more dangerous. Because if you don't expose them to that, so not only are they dependent, but they sponge like in their acceptance. And you say to them, do you know what the Torah says about marriage? And they say, no, Rabbi, tell me. The Torah says that marriage is based on giving. And they say, wow, Rabbi, that's amazing. Thank you so much for telling me that. And then they go and they try to apply the vote in real life and it backfires a thousand percent and they don't realize that it's backfiring because they just know that everything they rather told them they have to accept and they destroy their lives in the process. So not only are you getting them involved in the thirst for knowledge and allowing them access to Shari Chochmah, but you're pre prevent, preventing them from a different type of independence, which is intellectual independence. So you, you're allowing them emotional independence and intellectual independence. You're doing them a great favor. Um, the next point is that once they start learning Gemara, they start to get a context of the development of how halacha evolves. People are generally, if they haven't been exposed to halacha, are extremely cynical. They think it sounds so silly, the way people... They, they, they become obsessive compulsive about little details rather what difference does it make if the mezuzah is like this or like this or if it's got a letter or if it doesn't have a letter they have no respect for the body of halacha if you expose them to Gemara they see how rigorous the thought process is they develop a tremendous respect for the wisdom of halacha and they don't belittle rulings which seem absurd so the next advantage you have you've got intellectual independence you've got the power of the question that seeks him to understand you've got the ability to be able to understand that behind halachic reasoning there is deep and well thought out logic um, there's another point with that comes the more they learn and the more they see the brilliance of what the from the from the Tanoim to the Moroim to the Rishonim to the Achronim, they just see how absolutely brilliant these people were. So now they start to it absorbs subconsciously the idea that first of all Yeridus Adaris, because you see in the Gemara you see Yeridus Adaris, 
You see that the, the Mishnah is this big, the Gemara is this big, the Rishonim are this big, the Achronim are that big. So you see with your own two eyes, you're in the You tried to tell me you're in the and I'm not a mamming. I think you're joking. People in the past were primitive and we're advanced. And you say to me, they're advanced and we're primitive? Were they to know the words? So you see that through the process of engaging in teaching a Mishnah and seeing how the Gemara analyzes the Mishnah and you see the respect that the Gemara gives to the Mishnah and that no Amorah will ever be Chalik on the Tana and no Rishnah will ever be Chalik on Amorah you're showing them in a way way more effective than telling them about it they start to live Yeridus Adairus so that creates an Emunah in Torah it creates a healthy perspective of who came before and where we are today. It gives them so much in terms of finding their own place in Yiddishkeit. Um, that's in terms of the intellectual breakthroughs. Now in terms of in terms of the person's actual growth process, you're offering him something which is sustainable. I come from a place called South Africa and there's an interesting phenomenon. There's a whole whole world of Bale Chiva who are Makarevd through Makarvin. And you see the distinction between the people that were Makarevd through the superstars and the people that were Makarevd through the minor hitters. The people who are Makarevd through the superstars and they heard the fantastic lectures and the mind-blowing, inspiring ideas, they have nothing to take home. They have nothing to build their families with. They have no cue. In order to create sustainable growth, you have to something you have to have something you can get your teeth into, you can live with, and you can deal with. You can't live your life with Rabbi Tatsirim and Chasvashonim. They're amazing and mind blowing, but you can't build with that. To build, you need something that you can have in front of you, and you can examine, and you can grow with, and you can develop a connection to. And therefore, for sustainable growth, it's imperative that you have some type of connection to Limelight Gemara. What's that, all that other stuff there for? What is okay, again, that, 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 then, then I start to speak about my own opinions and stuff, and I don't want to do that because, but it's a good question. <laughs> okay, you go on. Um, do you sometimes get the, the people who have the problem with uh, the opposite extreme from what you're saying, that it's, it's super logical about, like, like what you were saying, small little differences that, that to them just seem irrelevant. and. And it's, it's overly legalistic and, and, and cranial and, 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 and for sure. doesn't make any sense for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sometimes you get people that they're not intellectually based, they're far more emotionally based, and the fact that things make intellectual sense to them doesn't really bother them. They just want an experience. So that that essentially is is, is a further problem because there's if you if you're dealing with a person like that, that's the kill call in the nefesh. If a person can't connect to something which is seicheldik, so he's very far from Ruchnius in the real sense. He may have a sense of, I can feel inspiration, but it's not real. It will come and go. So if you get a person like that, it's a much harder challenge in Chinuch because you have to be able to allow him to get nourished from an area where he's not used to being nourished from. And that's a massive challenge. And that's a challenge that we face a lot because you're taking people who were inspired often with not having no shaykhs to go and you're putting them into three sodarium a day and they just don't know what they're doing. And they say, well, just Rebbe, give me some chassidus. Which it means it could be that you have to, and you have to, but you have to know it's, it's a big challenge in Chinuch. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay. So, so again, so that's 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 another reason why it's crucial to 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 just to quickly end off because we are running out of time. There's another couple of reasons which, just as aside, practical, pragmatic reasons, is the person should get involved in 
in Limadal Gemara. There's a social reason. If a person wants to integrate into, into the world of, from Jews, it's almost your, your entry card, your passport in there is having some fluency, some level of fluency. The greater the level of flu- fluency, the greater the social acceptance. But you have to have some level of fluency, some familiarity with Gemara. If you're not, so then you're always chutz lemachne. And therefore, there's a pragmatic reason that if you've got aspirations for the person you're teaching, you want him to be able to learn because it's going to make him much more, much more part of the community. It's going to make, make him much more socially integrated. And when he thinks about how he's going to raise his children, he's going to be able to connect to what they're doing and not be completely estranged from it. Um, okay, we can, we can bring that to an end. And um, hopefully, starting from next week, we'll actually start to discuss the different levels. We're going to go, there's basically four levels, absolute beginners, beginners, intermediate and advanced and we're going to discuss a methodology of approach for each and every one of those different population groups.